you'll take up your Bibles once more and turn over to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to continue in our series on the Ten Commandments. We'll be focusing tonight on verses 4 through 6, but we will read verses 1 through 17 for context. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flowers fade. You may be seated. Pray with me. Our Lord and our God, as we come to your word again this evening, we pray that you will enlighten our minds to it, that you will teach us its depths as it reveals your character, that you will build us up in our love and desire for your law, and that you will work in our hearts by your spirit, that we may desire Christ all the more this night. Be with us, we pray, speak. For your servants are listening. We pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, 13 years ago, there was a short YouTube documentary released entitled The Church of Oprah Exposed. In this short video, the compiler uses a number of clips of Oprah to demonstrate that she not only doesn't believe the Bible, but that she doesn't believe in anything like the God of Christianity. In one of the clips, Oprah talks about the moment that her views changed. She was in her late 20s, sitting under a Baptist minister who was, according to her own words, preaching about God's omnipotence and omnipresence and love, and those things she was fine with, but also the jealousy of God. It was then that she realized, she said, that this couldn't be her God. The problem with such a position is that it's simply not biblical. 
We just read in very explicit detail here in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, the words, I am the Lord your God, or I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Of course, this is offensive to many, especially for those who only have a negative view of jealousy. But what I want us to see tonight is that God is not only a jealous God, but that he has every right to be jealous regarding his worship. We continue tonight in our study of the Ten Commandments, and we're moving on from that first commandment, talking about who we worship, to now in this second commandment this evening, talking about how we worship. As we examine the second commandment, Tonight, I intend to do so in the same way that is laid out for us in the text. Specifically, I want us to look first at the two imperatives or the the first two commandments that are given to us in this text in verses four through six. And that'll be our first point. And then I want to secondly tonight to look at the reason that is given for these imperatives as it's there for us in verses five and six. Well, first of all, our first point this evening, the first and the second imperative Do not make any graven images and do not serve them. Before we dive into this command, I think it's important for us to understand where it lies in regards to the first commandment and where it lies in regards to itself. The fact that it has two imperatives or two commands here in these verses. This commandment is unique in the first table of the law in that... um, It has in it two imperatives. You see that there. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And then a second imperative there in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Two you shall nots, two commands that are given to us. This is unique in the first table of the law and it shares only with the 10th commandment in uh, the whole law. 10th commandment you read there in verse 17 you shall not cover your covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife his male servant female servant so on again two imperatives in the 10th commandment so this is unique in the first table of the law and it is only only shares this in common with the 10th commandment moreover this commandment begins rather abruptly it calls on israel to not make any carved image or any likeness whatsoever leaving At a simple surface level reading, an implication that there ought not be any carving, no painting, no image of any kind that should be made by man. If you took only verse 4, completely devoid of its context, a simple reading of it would mean that we have no artwork, that we have no, no statues, no paintings, nothing whatsoever that depicts anything that is in the earth. Further, The second imperative of this commandment seems to, at the very least, at some level, repeat the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, commandment number one. And then this commandment, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. You shall not bow down to other idols, other things that are not the one true God. There seems to be some repetition here as we come to this second commandment. These three things in combination together, I think, have led some, uh, including some of the early church fathers and currently Rome, to include these two imperatives as extensions of the first commandment and dividing the tenth commandment into two commandments so that there's still ten commandments. But they, they connect these two imperatives with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall make no graven images, and you shall not bow down to those images. Well, we must admit that this command is certainly connected to the first, and it cannot be disconnected or separated from the first. It is, I believe, clear that this commandment stands on its own. The basic reasoning for this is that it's its own paragraph. Each and every one of the commands, as you notice, it's, it's divided for you in your English text as it is in the Hebrew text. Each one has its own, own paragraph, its own statement regarding it. And we see here, verses 4 through 6, are their own paragraph, two uh, imperatives in it. Though, though there are two imperatives in that paragraph, it is its own distinct paragraph, as is verse 17 with the 10th commandment. So, this then leads us back to the question of images. Can we, as human beings, make art, or does it violate the law of God? Well, the short answer is yes, we can and should Make art. The first prohibition here is not against any image, but is in the context of worship. The focus of these first four commands are all regarding the worship of God. It is who we worship, God alone. How do we worship? By his word, what he commands us or how he commands us to worship. The way that we worship, not taking his name in vain, but giving him honor and praise, holding him in esteem. And then where, when we worship on the Sabbath day. All of these are related to and connected to one another in that they deal with how we are to worship God. The same is true here. This commandment is necessarily connected to the first, yes, but it is its own distinct command. It tells us how we worship God. We don't worship him through images. This is a prohibition not against any image, but of making any image of God, any likeness of God. It's also distinct from the first commandment and that this commandment doesn't deal only with false gods, only with idolatry. That is certainly the focus of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The only thing that we can really understand from that is that we are to worship God alone and must reject all idolatry, turn from all other idols. This commandment goes further. Not only do we reject all idols, all man-made things, all, all false gods, but we also aren't to make images of and worship images of the one true living God. This commandment is not a prohibition against making idols per se. That was already prohibited in the first commandment. This is a prohibition against making any image of the one true God. Because in doing so, you are necessarily worshiping an idol. For the God of heaven, perfect in majesty and power, glorious beyond compare, simply cannot be imaged in created matter. And therefore, any image, any carving, any painting is an image carving or painting of something that is not God. Well, it doesn't take us long in the book of Exodus and even going on throughout the Old Testament to find Israel in violation of this commandment. In fact, it seems that this commandment is the line that they're first willing to cross that then leads to further idolatry down the road. Take, for example, the golden calf in Exodus 32. We haven't come there yet, but we will soon. Golden calf in Exodus 32, it's not an image of some idol. The golden calf is not some Egyptian god that they're, they're making and worshiping for themselves because they believe that Moses is gone and, and Yahweh's not paying attention to them anymore. Rather, it is an image of Yahweh. It is made 
This, they make this image. Aaron makes this image of the golden calf before the people that they might bow down and worship Yahweh. And we know this because Aaron refers to it using the divine name. He refers to the golden calf as Yahweh. This is not idolatry in the sense of worshiping some pagan god. This is a clear, however, this is a clear violation of the second commandment of making an image of God and bowing down and worshiping it. And of course, God is displeased with this and uh, punishes Israel for their sin. Later on, when the people come into the land of Canaan, their first rebellions against God are to make altars in the high places. And it's at these high places that they worship not the gods of Canaan, not the Baal or the Asherah, but Yahweh. They're simply worshiping Yahweh the way they want to worship him, rather than the way that he has told them to worship. And if it doesn't convince you, if that doesn't convince you, listen to the words of Moses himself in Deuteronomy chapter 4 as he's beginning this recounting of the law. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Moses understands, Israel understands what this commandment is about. It is about the worship of the living and true God. And it is a prohibition against creating an image that they then worship. I think Israel's example ought to be a warning for us. The fact that this commandment is the one that Israel is willing to cross first. And then consequently the resulting idolatry that flows from them crossing that line should serve to warn us. It should warn us against taking this commandment lightly. We must take it seriously. For how we worship determines who we worship. How we worship determines who we worship. If we worship like the pagans do, then we worship pagan gods. If we worship in any way that is not given to us in the scripture by God himself, then we worship a God other than Yahweh. When we make a graven image, no matter who we intend the image to be of, we necessarily make an image of something that is not God. And therefore, when we bow down to that image and worship that image, we are bowing down to and worshiping an idol. And when we do that, we break not only this second commandment, but we break the first commandment as well. And thus, this commandment makes clear, the, these verses make clear to us that we must not attempt to make any images of God. That brings us to a different question. What about images of Jesus? Well, this is, of course, a hot topic in our circles today. Even among ministers in the PCA, ministers in this presbytery that you are in, you'll find division. Some will say that they're fine with images of Jesus since he was, after all, incarnate man. Others would point to the fact that even in his incarnation, he is still 100% God. And they will say this then, therefore, violates the second commandment. So what about images of Jesus? Can we have images of Jesus? Pictures in our home, illustrations in children's storybook Bibles, movies portraying the passion and the life of Christ. 
when I was in college, I was coming from a Baptist background, and those of you who come from a Baptist background know this is not so much a concern in most Baptist churches. You will quite often find images of Jesus, pictures of Jesus, uh, in not only children's storybook Bibles, but in churches. Uh, Of course, we know that this is also true of Rome and Roman Catholic churches with their images of Jesus all over the place in those churches. But me coming from a Southern Baptist background, I grew up around this. We had images of Jesus. We had nativity scenes every Christmas. We watched the Jesus movie and and others like it. And so I wrestled with this very same question as I was coming into the Reformed faith and, and being convicted by my study of the law of God. And I was attending Second Pres in Greenville at the time. And on one side of the sanctuary at Second Presbyterian Church, for those of you who've been here, maybe you've seen it, or been there, maybe you've seen it. But there was this very old, very expensive stained glass window with a depiction of what was supposed to be Jesus. And one day I was walking through this issue, talking through this issue with a mentor of mine, and he took me in the sanctuary and he pointed to that window and he asked me, what is that an image of? I said, Jesus. Well, he responded and he said, notice that I asked what that is an image of and not who that is an image of. Because at best, we can say that that image is a picture or a depiction of the human nature of Jesus. But you see, that's not how the human mind works. We can't simply make intricate and these intricate and essential distinctions in the moment when we look at an image like that. Our mind immediately goes to, oh, that's a picture of Jesus, or oh, that's a picture of, of this person. Anytime we look at any image, we don't say, oh, that's a, a, a picture of a, a human baby in uh, this stage of their life. No, we, we see that's a picture of our child. We don't make those sorts of distinctions. And furthermore, even if we could make distinctions in our minds, as we looked at an image like that, we would be dividing the hypostatic union in a way that was never meant to be. In an act that detracts from the gospel in a distract, uh, distracting and destructive way. To have an image of Jesus and his human nature is essentially meaningless because Christ had to come and be both God and man in order for the gospel to mean anything for us, in order for him to keep the law that we couldn't keep and take our sin upon himself and put his righteousness on us, he needed to be both God and man. In order to take the the divine and eternal wrath of God against sin, he had to be God and man. And so to create images that picture only one part of his nature is meaningless and wrong. Well, this is a difficult thing in our culture today, especially in our evangelical church culture. We're saturated with media depicting the human nature of Christ, videos, memes, inspirational quotes with Jesus in the background. From movies to books to art to nativity scenes, we see Jesus everywhere. So what should we do? The commandment, I think, is clear. We must not make them And we must not worship them. We cannot have images of God. There are two imperatives for a reason. It's not enough to not pray to a picture of Jesus on the wall. We must not even have it in the first place. This is difficult for many in the church. This is perhaps difficult for many of you. 
But let me ask you this. Of what benefit are these images? If you have a nativity scene, if you have an an image of what is supposed to be Jesus on your wall at home, what does that image benefit you? Does it encourage you? It's an image of human nature and nothing more. Does it make you feel close to God? Does it make you feel at peace with God? Why? It's not God. It doesn't even image God. Does the image inspire you? How so? To be more manlike and less Christ-like? You see, any image that we possibly could have is empty and meaningless and useless because it does not depict God. So let us cast them off. Throw them away and look only to Christ as he's given to us in the gospel. The true God incarnate who can save us, who can deliver us, who can give us peace. It is Christ as he is described for us in the scriptures, in the pages of this book that has meaning, that has significance, that impacts our lives and and changes us in a way that some picture never can do. This is the imperative that is given to us in the second commandment. But notice that it's not an isolated command, like some of the other commandments. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But this commandment, with it, is given to us a reason. Uh, There's a reason attached to this commandment for why we ought to uh, obey it. A reason beyond the first and overarching reason that we talked about in the preface a couple of weeks ago, that God is God, that he is our God, and that he is our, our Lord, our Redeemer. Those should be reason enough to obey this command. His commandments. But this commandment is given a reason even beyond that of why we ought to obey it. This is our second point this evening, the reason for the commandment. You see this in the second half of verse 5 and in verse 6. We read beginning in, uh, we read this reason beginning in the second half of verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Why must this commandment be kept? Because our God is a jealous God. As we mentioned before, the idea of God as a jealous God doesn't sit well with a lot of people. After all, aren't we supposed to avoid jealousy? Isn't jealousy a bad thing? With us, with human beings, the answer is almost always yes. Jealousy is a bad thing. The reason is, is because often we are jealous of things that we ourselves are not deserving of. For example, if you're jealous of your neighbor's car, you're in the wrong because you're desiring after that which you have no right to. And therefore, it becomes covetous in nature, violating the 10th commandment, something we'll get to in a few weeks. This is true the majority of the time, I would argue, when we become jealous. We want something that we don't have. And therefore, we're jealous over it. We desire something that God has not given to us, but has given to someone else, and we want it, and therefore, we are jealous. Now, that's not to say that every time time jealousy is inappropriate in, uh, in our own human experience. Take, for example, the husband who sees another man trying to flirt with his wife. Or the wife who sees another woman trying to flirt with her husband. In both of these instances, the spouse is right to be jealous. Why? Because they have a right to the thing in question, namely their spouse's heart. They have a right to that because of the vows that they took when they married one another. So it is with God. 
As we covered last week, he alone is worthy of all praise and all honor. There is no other God and there can be no other God. He will not share his glory with another. And he can't. Therefore, when the glory that is due to God alone is given to a carven image made with hands, God must be jealous. For to not be jealous is to say that this idol that was made with human hands, made out of created matter, is equal with God. That it is deserving somehow of our worship. And that simply cannot be. This is where Oprah and others like her get it wrong. The fact that God is omnipotent and omnipresent and loving and good and kind means that he must be jealous because he alone is God. There's no one else with whom he can share his glory. Why should you not make images of God? Why should you not worship them? Because God is jealous and because he is jealous, he will punish all unrighteousness. Notice what it says. Uh, I, the Lord, am a, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's two things that I want to draw your attention to here. First of all, this is a covenantal statement, isn't it? Who has kept God's law? Which one of you has kept God's law even this week? Which one of you has obeyed this command perfectly? Have you kept this law your entire life? Absolutely perfectly, never imagining God in your mind or looking at a man-made image of him, ever. Have you done that? Well, certainly not. So then why is it that you're not under his righteous wrath? He says it's, uh, that wrath is coming for those who break this commandment, so why not you? And the answer is simple, because of his covenant with you. His covenant that says that you will not be measured by your works, but by Christ alone. His covenant that says that you won't pay the penalty, that Christ will pay the penalty. His covenant that promises a seed to crush the head of sin. It is through his covenant, through this covenant, that we are not counted among this first group. Those, whose God's wrath, those who will face God's wrath, but that we're counted among the second group. Why do we face the love of God and not the wrath of God? Because he has saved us, brought us out of the land of Egypt, and will bring us to the land of promise. Everything that we've seen up until this point, everything that is imaged for us in the book of Exodus with the people going into slavery and then being brought out of slavery and then the journey through the wilderness and being finally brought into the promised land is a picture of the Christian life. We were in slavery, in sin, in the land of Egypt, spiritually speaking. And when you were saved, you were brought out. You were delivered by the mighty hand of God. And now you walk through the wilderness as you head towards the promised land. And you will arrive there one day. The land of Zion. The land flowing with milk and honey. The land of promise. The reason that you don't face God's wrath is because you are under this covenant. Just as those who believed by faith in God. Who were there at Mount Sinai in person were under his covenant and therefore did not face his wrath. He has saved us. He has brought us out. He has delivered us. He will bring us to the land of promise. This is why we are showered in his love and given his mercy. Secondly, note here. 
that there are those who have taken this passage and come up with this idea of something like a generational curse. That the sin of the father will literally be visited on the children for generations to come. The worse the sin, the worse the curse. This has been used by all manner of people to argue against the adoption of children who don't come from Christian homes, especially children raised in dark parts of the world. And to be perfectly plain, such an idea is entirely foreign to the words of Scripture. I want to be firm in that. I also want to say this. The results and the resulting consequences of sin do affect more than just the individual. They affect more than just you. Your sins, your actions affect more than just you. They affect your children. They affect your spouse. They affect those around you far more than you realize. And not only do they, they affect you and affect your children, those around you in the moment, but by extension, as your children observe your sin and observe your, your willingness to sin and, and, and to continue in your sin, they see that as a pattern for themselves. And so then when they grow up, they begin to suffer from those same similar sins. Those same sins that affect you affect your children. And then they image those same sins for their grandchildren, and, or for their children, your grandchildren, and, and so on and so forth. Sin does have an impact on your children, on those who are around you. This is why we must be careful to kill sin in our lives, to flee from it. Because that is the pattern that we must set as Christians, that we want to set as Christians. A pattern that demonstrates a love for God's law. A love for keeping God's law. A pattern that hates sin and is never complacent in it. And it's that pattern that we want to demonstrate to our children. It's that pattern that we want our children to learn and to emulate. But at the end of the day, we are guilty for our sin. Our children are guilty for their sin. So on and so forth. We are called to set a better example. To be ones who love God and to keep his commandments. But our sin, our children are not punished for our sin. Only we are punished for our sin. Now certainly, we ought to be careful in setting this example. We ought to be careful in, in worshiping God as we ought. We should be careful in, in what we look at, in the things that we endeavor in. Because the God of all creation is a jealous God who will not allow sin to go unpunished. And so I call on you, flee to Christ. Trust in Him. As the hymn says, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word this evening. Oh Lord, this word that in many ways convicts us, that reminds us that we have not kept your law as we ought, but have done our own thing, gone our own way, sought after our own sinful desires. And yet, O oh Lord, at the same time, we thank you for this reminder of your love and your mercy. That when we are under your covenant, as you have promised, that when we have believed by faith, that we don't face your wrath, but we receive that love and that mercy. O oh Lord, such love and mercy cannot be imaged in anything made by our own hands, but can only come from the God of glory. O oh Lord, let us worship you according to your word, we pray.
For we pray it in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.